I'm grateful for the opportunity to get to be with you today, a wonderful opportunity to continue this series called What We Believe. This past week, I was reminded while I was traveling to visit my mom in North Alabama, went to see my sister, uh, and I was reminded that I am a city dweller, okay? I was out in the country, and yes, amen on the city? Okay, well, all right, all right. I grew up in the country, and I, I realized that I had become a city dweller when I got there. I left my sister's house uh, late on Tuesday night, and I discovered there was something in the country that we don't have in the city. It's called stars. You know, I, I, you know, you forget when you live in the city and you have all of the ambient light that comes from the city that you can't see so clearly. But when you get out in the country and away from the lights, and many of you have done this, you know what I'm talking about, the brilliance of the stars is unbelievably bright against this dark black canopy. And when I walked out, I was reminded of our text for today because the text for our message is Psalm 8. And we'll look at that in just a moment as we address this because the psalmist had a similar experience and he records that for us in this text. If you have your Bible with you, open it to Psalm 8. I want to read all nine verses and then we'll come back and uh, look at uh, what God has for us today in this text. The psalmist says this, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and with honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the fields, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. How excellent, O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. What a great experience that the psalmist had. He begins with God. That's the right beginning place for everything. Regardless of what you're studying, I got to say to you that the starting point is God. In this new series, that's where our pastor started last week began with, what do we believe about God? He helped us with a summary. He talked about what an incredible challenge it is to try to do that in a single message. I feel his pain today because last week he said, it's not because we don't know a lot about God, it's that we know so much. How do we package it into this one sermon? And I would say the same thing is true as we look at this picture of man. But he reminded us last week that God is three, yet one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit dwell in unity as one. He reminded us that God the Father was the Lord of love. He reminded us that God the Son was the giver of grace. And that God the Holy Spirit was the creator of intimacy. And so God is the starting point. Regardless of what subject you're studying, you need to start there. What does God say about this? And then move your way forward from there. The psalmist does that. He begins with acknowledging who God is. He begins with acknowledging that God's name is great in all of the earth, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Israel, but he says, really, you are Lord over all. And he's captured by the majesty of God. But what it is that really captures him in this moment is that he realizes that God has revealed himself through his created order. When he sees this black canopy littered with these diamonds of stars all over the sky, he realizes something about himself. It's a moment of recognizing his own insignificance. He realizes there are about 7.2, 7.3 billion of us sharing the planet today. 
When we start looking at numbers like that, it's very easy to kind of get overwhelmed and think, standing out under the scarlet, starlit sky, God, who am I that you would notice me? Who am I that you would even recognize who I am? And yet the psalmist goes on to acknowledge that he does. It's a great question for us today, a great question that he poses for us when he says, God, what is man? What is man that you're mindful of him? Well, that question has been sought to be answered by lots of people. Uh, Philosophers, theologians have given all kinds of answers and offered things about that. Let me just uh, say to you in in simplicity that there really are two basic answers uh, to that question, is that um, one group of people would say that man is constituted or man is made up of just matter. We are just cells. We are just uh, neurological connections in our brain. But this is all we got. We are our body. That's it. That's the whole enchilada. We live, we die, and it's all over. But the Bible would paint a different picture of man. If you think about the words that we just sang a few minutes ago, we use some different words. The Bible talks about our heart. The Bible talks about our soul. The Bible talks about our spirit. As a matter of fact, we are instructed to love the Lord our God. How? With all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. That puts us in a camp, uh, as followers of Christ, it puts us in a camp of what philosophers would call dualist. We would say that we are body and spirit, or body and soul. Those words are used interchangeably a lot in Scripture. What that means is that we would say there's something more about us than just this physical body. There's something about us that has an awareness of God. There's something about us that recognizes there's more to this life than just this physical existence. We're going to look and see what the Bible has to say about that issue today and about this question of what it means to be a man. But you see that the psalmist is overwhelmed in the midst of this when he recognizes that God really does care about him. He goes on to say that God has given man specific responsibilities. You see, what God has revealed about himself in nature in general revelation is something that helps us to understand a little bit more about ourselves. One theologian has said that the proper study of mankind is man. But the interesting truth about that is when we begin to study man, what we discover is God. There is some impression, there's some imprint about us. Another has said a true understanding of man cannot be achieved if God is disregarded. Anthropologists often attempt to study man, and they miss that biggest point. There are many who would disagree with everything I will say today. I want us to look at today is what the Bible has to say about that. But before we do that, let me just say to you that sometimes when we start to articulate what we believe... Sometimes we have difficulty putting that in just the right words, and I find that at times, sometimes what I believe can maybe express best in what I don't believe. Just as a way of illustration, uh, we have uh, some folks in our media department, Steve Harper and Jeremy Gray do graphic design, Karen Tucker do graphic design work for us here at the church. When I'm preparing something like this for our Life Groups Matter logo, I go to meet with them and we talk about what we want that to look like. Sometimes I know exactly what I want the logo to look like, and that's really easy, but sometimes I'm just quite not sure what I want, and they will help me by giving me some options, and sometimes I can say, boy, I don't want it to look like that, and I don't like that, I don't, that's what I want it to look like. 
Well, sometimes that's true for us. When stating what we believe, sometimes one of the ways that we best state that is in the negative, is by saying what we don't believe about man. So in this message, I want to share with you some things that we believe uh, as a church, as followers of Christ. I also want to share with you some of the things that we don't believe. I recently had an opportunity because of a class that I'm taking to read the Humanist Manifestos 1, 2, and 3. Boy, if you hadn't read those in a while, you ought to dig those out and read them, okay? Because I would encourage you to take a look at that. You might be surprised that in looking at that, that it would take you about two sentences into those documents to say, oh, wait a minute, I do not, that is not what I believe. And sometimes looking at what we don't believe helps us clarify what we do believe. Well, what does the Bible say about who man is, about what man is? Last week, Pastor Eric used three phrases uh, to help us remember some things about God. I'm going to use three circles. I'm going to borrow from Dr. Kevin Izzell and and, um, Jimmy Scroggins, uh, a tool. It's called Three Circles. Um, It's called Three Circles Life Conversations. This is available as an app on your phone. If you have a smartphone and have an interest in this, I would encourage you just to search for that app, Three Circles, because by the end of our message today, I hope you'll be where you would like to use that in sharing with some other people along the way. We think about who man is. I want to just give you three words or three phrases that will help you today remember uh, what the Bible teaches, what we believe about man. We're going to use the acrostic man, M-A-N. So I just want you to remember three things that spell the word man, all right? So the first one is that we are made in God's image. Made in God's image. As we look at chapter 8, verse 5, what the Bible says is of man, he says, you have made him a little lower than the angels. Verse 6 says, you have made him to have dominion over all the works of your hands. You may recall that Psalm 100 verse 3 says about uh, mankind that it is he, God, who has made us and not we ourselves. He made us. Genesis chapter 1, the creation story, what we discover is that God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the, uh, all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, for the earth, uh, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What I want you to know first about what the Bible teaches about man is that we are made in the image of God. That means that we are different from all of the other created order. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but if you look at the Genesis story, Genesis 1, if you look at verse 3, you look at verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, verse 20, what you will discover is that God spoke into existence other elements of creation. God said, let there be light. The Bible says that there was light. But the Bible does not say of man that God said, let there be man. No. The Bible says that this triune God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, verse 26 says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. This picture of being created, of being made, there are two different words, one for create, one for made. Both of those are used to describe us. They picture for us a special involvement of God in our creation. But even more than that, the Bible says that we are each stamped with this image of God. What is the image of God? Well, a couple of ways we might think about that. One of those is that, um, well, let me eliminate one thing. One, it's not about our body. 
Now, we know that God doesn't have a body in that sense. The Bible in the New Testament says that God is spirit, and those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. So it's not that as good-looking as you are, it's not like that that's the part of you that's the image of God, okay? This body is going to fade. This is our temporary dwelling. So we, again, we believe that we're not just body, but we are body and soul, or body and spirit, that there is something else about us that constitutes who we really are on the inside. And this idea of the image of God carries with it a reminder that God has created us in such a way that we reproduce after our own kind. Some of you may have had this experience. You've awakened early in the morning and you've gone and looked in the mirror and much to your surprise, your parents have moved in. (laughs) How does that happen? Well, you know, genetically, our parents have passed on the good, bad, and the ugly to us And you young people don't have any idea what I'm talking about because you have not had that happen yet. But as you grow older, what you will discover is kind of like, gee whiz, my father just showed up. I didn't know that. Where did that come from? Well, you're made in the image of God. But again, that's not about the picture of our external. It's something about who we are on the inside. So let me suggest to you some things that the image of God involves. The image of God involves some things about God's character. Last week, Eric said that God was the Lord of love. He has given us the ability to love him and to love others. Uh, To be able to be the giver of grace, he has given us those characteristics to be able to extend grace to other people. The creator of intimacy, the Holy Spirit, God has allowed us again to be able to have relationships with one another. I would suggest to you it also has to do with actions and abilities uh, that God takes and that God has. Along those lines, I want you to think about what it is that distinguishes us and makes us different from the rest of uh, the animal kingdom or the rest of the created order. One of those things that distinguishes us or sets us apart is the ability to reason. It's the rational mind to be able to think, to be able to communicate, to be able to use words. That's different. We are separate and, and apart from the rest of creation in that way. It is also true that being made in the image of God is about relationship. Again, God has made us to be able to make moral choices and to be able to engage and enter into and out of relationships with himself and other people. It's also about responsibility. Did you see in chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, what the uh, psalmist said that God has given us a responsibility to do? He said, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, all the sheep and the oxen, the beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish in the sea. And we find that restated again in the Genesis text, that God has given man this image of God, making him responsible for caring for all the creation. Now, can I just say that we have every reason to have been green before green was green? Okay, God has given us the stewardship of the world. He has given us the responsibility for caring for that. He did not give that to cattle. He did not give it to lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my, he gave it to us. Okay. That's part of the image of God stamped on our life. There's another characteristic of the image of God we find in verse 27. The Bible says that God made them both male and female. I'll give you a newsflash for our culture today. Men and women are different, okay? We are not the same. Now, we are confused as a culture about that. There are people that are on a mission to go to some gender neutrality Uh, for us to be able to say that we're all the same or we're all equally confused or something, but that the truth of the matter is God made us male and female. 
Well, yes, in one sense, in an obvious way, for reproductive reasons and for us to be able to reproduce after our own kind, yes. But in a larger sense, I believe that that is a picture of what the pastor showed us last week, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, dwelling together in unity, in community. God did not make us in such a way that we were complete in and of ourselves in such a way that we were to be an island unto ourselves. God did not make you to live in isolation over here by yourself. The Bible says of Adam that there was no companion or no helper found for him, no one suitable for him. And it is not good, God said, for man to be alone. Yes, this could be a picture of marriage, but beyond that, in a greater sense, it is a picture of our need for one another. The Godhead dwells together three in one, in unity and community. Part of the image of God is our need for each other and this relationship of community. Well, lastly, I would just say that we are image bearers of God to the world. One theologian has has said it this way. He said, "I, I believe that the reason making graven images was prohibited in the Ten Commandments is because there was not a need for another image to remind us of God. Because God has stamped on the life of every person that you see the very image of God. Stephen Curtis Chapman said it this way. He said, I can see the fingerprints of God when I look at you. He said, you're a masterpiece that all creation quietly applauds because you're covered with the fingerprints of God. You know, it is an amazing thing, but trust me, not all of the world believes what I've just told you. As a matter of fact, much of the world does not believe that. Much of the world believes that we just somehow showed up here that we just climbed out of the primordial ooze and we just sort of became us. And we just sort of began to take on the world and just sort of began to do the things that we do. Can I tell you, the Bible does not paint that picture of mankind. The Bible says that you were made in God's image. Doesn't take us long, though. We get to Genesis chapter 3 in the creation story and something happens. You know it as the fall of man. It's the theological term for it. Sin enters into the world. And as sin enters into the world, everything changes. Everything God that is, has made that is good is now twisted. It is now perverted. Devastation everywhere. Death has entered into the world. Universally, we get this. We understand it. Just ask your neighbor sometime. Just say, hey, I've got a question for you. I'm just curious, from your perspective, what's gone wrong with the world? And see, they won't look at you like you're crazy because they understand that something's wrong with the world. We get it. How do we know that? Well, probably you turned on the news this morning or you read a newspaper yesterday. For young people, that's a piece of paper that has news stories in it, but you looked it up online, okay? So you read about things. What did you read about? You read about disease spreading around the world. You read about war. You read about terrorist activities creating all kind of havoc in the world. Maybe you read about hunger or starvation. Maybe you read about abuse. You see, we understand that something's wrong in the world. We get that. So that's what happened at the fall of man. Um, Then in response to that, what do we do? We form governments. We form humanitarian relief organizations. We form the Peace Corps. We form treaties between countries. In order to do what? You help me with this. So that we can make the world a... Now, how'd you know that? That's what my notes say. That's what I wrote. 
because we get it that the world is broken. It's messed up. Why is it? We would say, what the Bible teaches is that sin entered into the world and marred God's creation. So not only are we made in God's image, but the second, I hope you're drawing this little diagram, okay, because this is what it's going to be on the screen the whole time, so you just keep on doing this. We are alienated from God by sin. Now, this is not good news. This is not good news at all. Do you remember that Adam and Eve were walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day? And they were in a relationship with him, and everything was hunky-dory, but the evil one came along and tempted them. And when they chose to be disobedient to God, when they chose to say, you know what, it's my life, I'll do whatever I want to do. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And when they chose to go down that road, that devastation entered into the world. And it resulted in Adam and Eve being removed from the garden. Now, it's a significant occurrence in Scripture. We don't need to miss that. Because they're removed from the garden, but they are still made in God's image. But now that image of God is defaced. It is not erased, it's not lost, but it is defaced and it's damaged. Listen to what Isaiah says. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Alienation is is separation. No longer connected to the Father. That single result or that single choice has resulted in every one of us now being born into sin. We are sinners both by nature and by choice. Listen to how the Bible describes us in this state. In this state, the Bible says that we are blind, cannot see, that we are deaf, that we cannot hear, that we are lost, that we are rebellious, that we are without hope, that we are haters of God. We are desperately wicked, children of the devil, and yes, even Jesus himself said, Matthew 7, 11, look it up and see what he said. Jesus said that we are evil. Okay, now some of you, I lost right there, because some of you are thinking, now hold on, chief, wait a minute, I'm not evil, okay? I'm a pretty good guy. Can I just tell you that that response on our part is a reminder of being alienated from God? You see, we know the truth about this. We do know deep down in our heart that sin separates us from God. And we don't want to think about ourselves. As a matter of fact, one of those results of the fall, and a part of our fallen nature, is that temptation and desire on our part to defend our goodness. We work overtime on a never-ending project that is futile to be sure that others see us as good. See those little squiggly lines off that circle? Those are efforts that we make individually to somehow try to escape this picture of being alienated from God. And all we do is go farther away from God. We go deeper into sin, we go further into addiction, or we go further into uh, some effort to escape the pain of being separated from God. This is not good news. This is a good news, bad news situation. The good news is we are created. We are made in the image of God. But the bad news is we are alienated from God because of our sin. Now, you have to have bad news to have good news. That's important. You need to recognize that. You've got to have bad news to have good news. Let me illustrate it this way. If Thursday morning, if you had said to me at 8 o'clock at the breakfast table, hey, just want to tell you, you don't owe the city of Nashville anything I would have said, okay, great. 
Hey, no problem. I would have not thought about it again throughout the day. If you said to me this morning, hey, let me tell you, you don't know the city of Nashville anything, I would say, wow, thank you. That is awesome. Why? Because at 1.50 on Thursday afternoon, in haste to get back to the airport, to get my rental car back, to catch a flight, to be back here, who knew they changed the speed limit from the Interstate 65 to Brawley Parkway from 65 to 55? I mean, you know, I pulled right off the interstate, and I don't think I made any adjustments. Well, two people knew that. I knew that, and the police officer knew that, because when I topped the hill, he was standing outside of his motorcycle with his gun, just like this. And I thought, ooh, that's not good. I looked in my rearview mirror, and I saw him straddle the motorcycle, and then I saw him pull out behind me, and then I saw the blue lights, and I thought, okay. I met a very nice officer, and he promptly issued me a citation for exceeding the speed limit on that day. See, I do owe the city of Nashville something now. But at 8 o'clock in the morning, I didn't. It would not have been necessarily good news. It would be great news for me now. Let me tell you what the really good news about that situation is, is that I have $95. And I can pay that fine. Worse than that is in this situation, alienated from God, there's nothing I can do. You know what? You can't get an eraser big enough to erase the stain of sin on your life. Neither can I. There's nothing I can do. And we don't like that idea. I mean, we really just got to figure there's always a way, okay? There's, there's got to be a way that I can do something to fix this. But the truth is there's not anything that I can do. That's what we call the gospel, the good news of the gospel is this. Romans 5, 8, the Bible says, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still alienated from God as sinners, Christ died for us. Man, that is good news. Well, why, you might think? Well, because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. You get what you deserve for, for sin, it is death. That's the penalty. You see, we don't want to pay that price with our life. Christ, however, you might say, well, he never sinned. And I would say, you're exactly right. Jesus never sinned. That made him the fitting sacrifice on my behalf and on your behalf. Jesus didn't die for his own well-being. Jesus died because he saw you in that alienated state from God and knew that he could do something about it. That is great news. I got to tell you, that's incredible news because God has loved you enough to do something for you that you could not do for yourself. He loved me enough to do something for me that I could not do for myself. So what is it that we believe about man? We believe about man that he's made in the image of God. We also believe that we're alienated from God because of our sin, but we also believe that when we repent, turn away from our sin and ourself, and we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he's already done for us, we believe. The net result of that is that we are a new creation in Christ. Now, do you see it? Man, made in God's image, alienated from God, new creation in Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he said, if any man, not if some, not if a few, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, everything has become new. Can I tell you that's good news? But it's only good news for people who come to a place of being honest with themselves and saying, I am not good. You see, one of the things that we don't believe about man is that we are inherently, by our nature, 
good. Do we do good things? Yeah, we do. We do. How many bad things does it take for you to do in order to not be good? You see, we don't like to admit that. But the truth is, we are in the same boat because all of us have sinned and our sin has separated us from God. Listen to how the New Testament describes those of us who are in Christ. The Bible says of being in Christ that we are redeemed, that we are saved, that we are saints, that we are the called out ones. We are the people of God. We are the children of God. We are a holy nation, sons of God. We are the beloved of God. We are those who are born again. Now, those are much, much, much better terms than being dead and being enemies of God and being haters of God and being uh, alienated from him. When that transaction takes place by faith, God changes our heart. By his Holy Spirit, he takes up residence in our life and he begins to put us on this journey of pursuing and of being restored back and recovering back that image of God. Now, it's true that as followers of Christ, we should be better image bearers of God than those who are not followers of Christ. Why? Because Christ is the perfect image of the invisible God. He alone changes who we are. You see, God loved, uh, created us to love him. And he created us to be in community with him and with one another and to love others. And then when we have become this new creation in Christ, he gives us the responsibility and the call to continue to live this mission to take the gospel, this good news, to the ends of the earth. You might wonder, well, how is it that this whole thing really matters? Why does it matter what we believe? Well, I would just say it this way. It matters what we believe about man because it informs or it affects how we do evangelism. You see, what we believe about man matters. And when I understand that man is alienated from God because of his sin, the love of Christ compels me to help share this story with him. That he does not have to remain in that place of being distant and separated from God for all of his life. That because of God's love for him, there is an opportunity, there is hope for him to have new life in Christ. It affects how we do evangelism. It affects how we look at missions, how we see the world around us. We have a team in Southeast Asia right now. Why? Because we understand that people, because of their sin, are alienated from God. And apart from this gospel, this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, transforming their lives, they will spend an eternity separated from God. The love of Christ compels us to go forth. It affects how we treat our fellow man. According to James 3, 9, God is offended when we curse those around us because they bear his likeness. It impacts the very reason that we would stand for life, what we believe about man. Why is it that we would be champions and defenders of life? These children that were here a moment ago, lovely, beautiful, precious children. Why? Because they smile and they're pretty? No, that's part of it, but it's more than that. You see, it's because they are image bearers of God. The fact that others bear the image of God means that they have innate dignity and worth that we extend toward them because they bear his image. What we believe about man matters tremendously. It informs how we see ourselves. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 12, 3, be careful not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to. That's a good word for all of us. You see, sometimes we're tempted to think that we have no value and sometimes we think we have ultimate value. The reality is we don't need to see ourselves just through that original nature of sin, but we also need to see ourselves through the lens of the grace of God 
as he sees who we can be in Christ. This doctrine informs our perspective on people of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. You see that it erases color from our view. Each person carries dignity and worth in God's eyes. We are God's image bearers around the world. And so what I want to say to you today is that our stories matter. Every one of us in here has a story. Our story is either how we went from circle one to circle two, or that story extends to how we move from circle two to circle three. Your story matters. God desires for each one of us to understand that his call in our lives is for us to go to the ends of the earth to take the gospel to other people who are in need, at least across the street. God desires to use us in such a way that our story begins to have a powerful impact on the lives of other people. I would encourage you, like the psalmist, maybe if you're out tonight, later this evening, what few stars are able to make their way through the atmosphere here. I want that to be a reminder to you to say, God, when I consider the works of your hand, the sun, the moon, and the stars, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you would visit him? And then be reminded that yet he has. The fact that God has changed your life gives you every motivation and passion to take this story to the ends of the earth.